Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. Welcome to another podcast at SlyesOffice.com, brought to you by the Operating Engineers Local 139 and Madison Teamsters Local 695. Joining us now from Lviv, Ukraine, Professor Jeffrey Wills. He has been at Ukrainian Catholic University and is you're sitting on a, an advisory board now. Is that is that correct, Professor? Yeah, I'm part of the executive team at the university and also involved with a number of uh, community development nonprofits here. So you have uh, you have stayed in Ukraine during this whole uh, attack from Russia. Is that correct? Well, actually, I was out of Ukraine for a little while. We a month or so, being of March, we had some meetings in Washington with uh, government agencies at the Ukrainian embassy and. Um, obviously trying to lobby the government for uh, for help. But then I've been back here in Lviv for the past month. Yep. So you came back while this was going on? Yes, it's a little more complicated than usual because, as you know, uh, the only flights we're really here, having here are Russian bombers. So you have to fly into different places in Poland and then get yourself uh, you know, across the border uh, through through vehicle routes, or there is one pedestrian crossing, actually, too. Wow. Well, that is incredible uh, and and shows uh, your level of commitment to Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up as an American, uh, somebody who went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, how you ended up in Ukraine? Right. Well, actually, I didn't have the honor of going to the University of Wisconsin. I uh, studied in the East Coast. But then I came to teach in Madison. Teach at the university, yeah. Okay. In the university in the 80s. And um, Uncle Sam thinks I've been living there ever since. Uh, but I have been for the past 25 years or so abroad, uh, mostly in Ukraine, but also in Africa, Iraq, other places. Um, and it, mainly it's because of uh, friendship. So I have a, a, there was a friend of mine from graduate school at Harvard who was a Ukrainian-American, one of those people who, you know, Sons of a son of displaced persons from World War II who grew up in a world like many Lithuanians and Ukrainians, thinking that the Soviet Union is going to fall. We've got to be ready to go back, and it, it did in fact fall. And he did come back, and then invited me to come and help him uh, with helping set up this university. All right. And then in a variety of different roles, we just started with a, a very small uh, renting, basically a nursery school. And growing it over the years until now, it's uh, the top university in the country. You've got about 2,000 students? That's right, yep. And uh, from all over the country, and they have the, the highest, uh, I guess, SAT equivalents. 
and it's uh, it's a great pleasure to work with them. And we, of course, have been through. This is not the first dramatic event in Ukraine, as you know. There's about a revolution every ten years or so, um, because uh, there's a great need to still keep reforming and reviving the Ukrainian nation. Yeah, we've we've watched with so much interest with the Orange Revolution and Viktor Yushchenko, and then. In 2014, uh, again, uh, Viktor Yanukovych tossed out. Uh, Putin once again turned on the people of Ukraine. It's a, it's been a remarkable thing to watch. Uh, when you went to Ukraine, did you ever think that Putin would go as far as he has? Um, no, I think um, you know the world in the '90s. We all had a different view of. We were still living in a kind of post Cold War mentality. And Russia was having an opportunity, just as all the countries in this part of the world, to, to grow and reform themselves, extraordinary natural resources. Um, but, yeah, the, the very kind of uh, crooked and violent path that he's chosen was, was not obvious at first. And, it, you know, I think um, it, become, it became obvious, as people remember, in 99, 2000, and in Chechnya, just the extraordinary devastation of Grozny. And then, obviously, a little bit later in Aleppo and Syria, and and then um, Georgia, Crimea, Eastern Ukraine. I think I think we're all a little bit we were all a little bit naive in in thinking that he was just doing little tactical things here and there, poisoning a few people in London, blocking off an electric grid in Ukraine, and not realizing what uh, what an extraordinarily uh, you know cosmic plan he had. How much of this is based on the fact that Ukraine has become quite successful, not only as a democracy, but as a thriving society economically? How much do you think that Putin views that as a threat? Uh, you know, I would absolutely agree with you. I think, you know, people were saying that there was something about you know, NATO expansion, but it's really, if you're an autocrat, the thing that you worry most about is a palace coup. You can check you know, Suetonius and the Roman historians on this. And so it's, it's the Orange Revolution and the other events in Georgia and Ukraine and the, the thriving civil society that I think was most threatening and the ability to, to toss out people who are uh, abusing uh, the nation. And uh, as, as you can tell from the kind of bunker world he's created with multiple levels of security, you're, you're dealing with somebody who is... Uh, who's most concerned not about about his nation and maybe not even about his legacy, just maybe his own personal survival, first of all. We saw the violence in the 1990s in the Balkans and religious violence between Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholics. Can you give us any insight on whether you think some of this antagonism uh, from Putin is religious based. He claims to be. I saw him doing the sign of a cross on television the other day over the casket of a soldier. He claims to be a Russian Orthodox. How much of this is rooted in uh, the battle that started in Constantinople? Um, well, that is certainly the the flag that he flies under. That this is the vision of of Moscow as the Third Rome, and. It's what gives an excuse to action to be saving Russia from from Europe, which, you know, you may have a different idea of Europe, but 
but in Moscow, you know, Europe is is the land of, of Napoleon and Hitler and all these, you know, dastardly people who are attacking the purity of, of Russia. Uh, so this certainly is the storyline. The truth, as you may know, is that sadly the Orthodox Church was was heavily decimated and corrupted then by the Soviet Union. So it, although Russia is maybe a country of, of 150 million church-going rates um, would be in you know under five percent. So you could get five percent for Christmas and Easter, but usually you know people aren't church-going. You might think more, and this is true of Eastern Ukraine as well in Kiev. Uh, you might think of comparisons like uh, Shintoism in Japan or something. You know, and for important uh, ceremonial events in life, you would go to a church, but it's not something that would uh, distract you on a an ordinary basis. So, you know, religion has a, a symbolic value that he has been able to um, um, manipulate, I think we could say. Um, but it's, I don't think that uh, I have any special insight into his soul, unlike other people. Yes, many have thought they have been able to analyze him and been strikingly wrong over the years. So, the United States role with Ukraine goes, you know, goes back. Uh, and, and I found, uh, found something where it, there's a, U, there's a U.S. Ukraine, what is it? Foundation? An organization? Well, Go ahead. Yeah, there are a number of, the Ukrainian diaspora is active and it has its, its, its network of causes supporting it. And, it, you know, during, you know, the, the time of the Soviet Union, Ukrainians worried that their entire culture would be destroyed in their homeland and they would only survive in, you know, overseas. And so making sure that the next generation all went to Ukrainian Saturday schools and uh, participated in events and parades and summer schools and camps uh, was a very important issue. And, and one of the big achievements was to get a statue of Taras Shevchenko, the Ukrainian poet, in Washington. So there have been a number of Ukrainian organizations over the years, and still are ones trying to lobby the government for more attention. Tell me about the role of the Catholic Church in Ukraine and how uh, it is dealing with this situation. Uh, obviously, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is uh, is a little different. It's under Rome, but it, it, it goes with the Byzantine Rite liturgy. It, it has the look more of the Orthodox Church, but it is distinctly Catholic. The Ukrainian Catholic Church uh, and, and, and Rome and this current Pope, Pope Francis, how do you think that how do you think that is playing in this situation right now? Um, so yeah, so Ukraine is um, a multi-confessional country, uh, as you say. It's the home to uh, an Orthodox tradition. It's home to Polish Roman Catholics. There's Armenian Cathedral in the city I'm in now. Uh, this is the home of the Hasidic movement. The Tatars are Muslim in Crimea. So it's, it's been a pluralistic country for many years, and that's part of what surveyed, survived, um, allowed it to survive against kind of government takeovers uh, because of the, the inability of the, the government to take a single church. The Ukrainian Catholics are, as you said, they're Orthodox people. They're, all their customs are of the Byzantine Rite, Eastern theology, uh, but they are in union with Rome. And so there are about uh, 5 million Ukrainian Catholics here, um, and as well as a million Roman Catholics, and of course 
many millions of Orthodox people. The Ukrainian Catholic, uh, all these churches have actually been involved with with both this current uh, war and crisis and supporting the people and with the, the Orange Revolution and the Maidan of 2014 on a big stage in the center of Kiev. And it really showed the unity of the religious organizations working together, the chief rabbi and the, the patriarchs of the different churches. Um, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, I mean, is, you know, obviously like all, and even now the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, everyone is supporting the Ukrainian people and, you know, organizing humanitarian aid issues as they can. There's a little frustration that that Rome is, has been a little, and the Vatican has been a little slow in trying to find the right terms. It's obviously a great, uh, a great challenge. People want to maintain uh, ecumenical relations and uh, pray for peace everywhere. But uh, here the, the Church is very clear that this is a case of good versus evil, and um, you know, people need to be called uh, to repentance for their sins. How has this affected uh, the, the the school itself? Is is it still in session during this this war? I know Lviv has not been attacked to the extent that other parts of Ukraine has, and, and life is seemingly more normal, uh, and that's all relative. Uh, has school continued during this crisis? So the the university continued. We continued for the first couple of weeks. It's really important for students to be with other students. I mean, in a time of trauma, you know, you need to have solidarity and uh, collegiality. And then after that, you know, we could, uh, everyone, you know, was then in a time of needing to connect with families and people had to move around the country for different reasons. And so students basically organized them, were organized into groups for different volunteer projects. And so we have a, a, uh, a large volunteer humanitarian aid center at the university. We're getting shipments from all over Europe, and of course it's a great chance for students to develop their own skills and, uh, you know, both in you know, logistics, IT, whatever. Um, then the past, the universities in the country, where they could, some started up uh, classes again uh, this week or this past week, partly because everyone's been trained by COVID how to do things online, so you can do some of this. And, and also because it's a way of reaching people who are who are overseas now or been displaced in, inside the, the country. Uh, for at the lower levels of education, there's also some some online courses going on. And then we this the Ukrainian education platform I mentioned, we've been creating a uh, um, some some kind of alternative schools for 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 kids. And we have about 15 of these educational centers uh, uh, together with UNICEF. How crucial is the church and not your school, the church, um, in helping Ukraine rebuild after this cataclysmic event? Uh, How how important is the the foundation of faith in that country? Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of unity, a lot of fighting pride right now. An excellent military, uh, a very charismatic leader, but tell me how you think faith will play a role in rebuilding the country. Um, in some ways, of course, the you know President Zelensky has become a moral leader, for not just Ukraine, but for her, I think much of the world. So I think that, as we all know, for 
overcoming crisis, people need to have heroes in faith, people who are setting examples. This is what the, the roles of the saints and martyrs have been through through the years. And I think that already the, the number of funerals and, or, or events where you're seeing the people have to reconcile themselves to this extraordinary trauma. And so there's a lot of asking, of course, you know, how this all could happen. And faith is one of the traditional ways in which people can can try to understand the the incomprehensible. Uh, the different churches are organized to different levels. The um, the Greek, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and the the Protestant churches are have a longer tradition of of social ministry. Uh, the Orthodox Church uh, wasn't hasn't really been organized for that. I mean, this again is where you cannot underestimate the Soviet Union. That as you probably know, slide in the Soviet Union, there were no social problems. Uh, everything was taken care of uh, happily by the government. And so churches were really not allowed to do much besides worship services. And so it, it's taken a while after the fall of the Soviet Union for the Orthodox Church to um, to start to become active in social issues. So a lot of it, this the answer to your question is, is, um, is depending upon different time, places and different churches, how strong the leadership is, and how experienced they are with with dealing with the the trials of of their faithful. We'll take a quick break. Professor Jeffrey Wills with us from Ukrainian Catholic University, SlyOffice.com. I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date, whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another edition of SliceOffice.com, brought to you by the Operating Engineers, Local 139, and the Madison Teamsters, Local 695. Joining us now, State Representative Lisa Subek. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sly. Thanks for having me. So let's, uh, I'm going to play a little of the coverage from the testimony that former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman gave in front of your committee the other day. Here it is. ...to its election system. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by Madison Computer Works and also Jeff's Guitar Clinic. Joining us now from Lviv, Ukraine, Professor Jeffrey Wills. He is... An American who has spent the last how many years in Ukraine? How many? Uh, well, I came here. In, I came here in '95, just for a summer, and then '96, just for a summer, and then for a year, and then for many, many years now. How many? How many languages do you speak? Well, uh, um, that's a good question. A lot of the languages I know are, are dead languages, so you know, Latin, Greek. Uh, Sanskrit, uh, Akkadian, so you don't uh, find much conversational need. Um, but here, obviously, in Eastern Europe, uh, there's the different Slavic languages. My Ukrainian is good, but not so good. Some of, uh, not more than basic for Russian and Polish. Um, obviously, mostly the common European languages. And I 
worked in Africa now for a number of years with endangered languages there, so uh, a couple of those I, I'm okay on. What surprised you most about living in Ukraine these last 20-some years? Um, I think that the, the, what we're all seeing, which is the development of the civil society, uh, it wasn't at all apparent at the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, what was left. People had, had this, a lot of the healthy parts of society that we're talking about, the volunteer culture and all that, had really been suppressed and was invisible. And also different parts of Ukraine had been under different uh, empires over the centuries, the Austrian Empire, Polish state in the West, and the, um, the Russian Empire in the East. And it wasn't at all clear that there could be this, um, this kind of extraordinary volunteer movement. In fact, I would say that 10 years ago, when I was, we were trying to organize volunteer events, it was hard to find volunteers. Um, people had been, you know, it had a bad name because if you need to clean up your local park, in the Soviet Union, uh, some factory was assigned to send workers there. Um, and so there wasn't a tradition of volunteering. And really what organized us was Mr. Putin's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And suddenly you saw all these people going, you know, like 1776, going off to volunteer in militias and, and travel across the country to try to defend the country and grandmothers cooking up big vats of borscht to send along in a way that, you know, seems primitive, but of course turned out to be really the revival of civil society, building on the, the Orange Revolution Maidan that you, you spoke about. And so this, of course, is what distinguishes Ukraine from Russia. It's often said that you know, Russia has a strong state but a, a weak civil society, and whereas Ukraine has just the opposite of a strong civil society but a weak state. And I think we're now finding out that perhaps really Russia has both a weak state and a weak society, and Ukraine has, has strong in both categories. So I think the answer to your question would be, I'm as surprised as anybody by the extraordinary um, commitment and organized commitment of civil society here. It, it, I knew it, but I didn't, uh, didn't expect it to be so successful. Could this be an inflection point? Obviously, we have this tug right now. We have... This rising strain of authoritarianism, uh, we have Le Pen running in France, we have former President Trump, we have Kim Jong-un, we have China flexing its muscle, we have the fight in Pakistan, we have uh, what's going on in Hungary. Um, could Ukraine's survival and the attention on Zelensky be a point where maybe it... it, it becomes a, a, maybe a, almost like a, a situation where it, it gives people a chance to reflect and, and pick civil society and democracy over autocracy? Oh, I, I think you're probably in as good a position as I am to answer that, but I, it's clear that this has become a moment in world history and that places like Bucha and Mariupol will, will join the list of of great, you know, devastated cities. And we have, because of that, lots of people have come, not only the international media, uh, but also volunteers, lots of medical staff. And I just, every day, just today, I met a number of American volunteers, American veterans who are coming to help in different ways. So the, the 
the connection that everyone feels to this story means that it is a place where everyone can be reflecting. And so I think you're right that it's a it's it's something that we're still trying to understand, and it's still in progress, sadly. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. I have to tell you, it is remarkable to drive around the streets of both Madison and Milwaukee and see people flying Ukrainian flags. I know they're not all Ukrainian; some of them uh, maybe, uh, but it is really uh, just simply amazing. And we're talking about quite a few here. Uh, did you have any idea that was happening? Um, I saw in Washington the week I was there that all sorts of all sorts of streets uh, uh, had had flags on them. Different embassies of other countries were carrying them, and of course outside the Ukrainian embassy, an extraordinary you know series of bouquets and piles of flowers. Um, I think no, I think the whole world is, is instead has become has become Ukrainian, and partly it's because of the the lovely you know simple but clear flag with the uh, the fields of wheat and sunflowers you know with the sky above it well now let me ask you how people can help uh, you don't necessarily have to give me specific charities but what do you think is being overlooked right now and what doesn't ukraine need well so first of all let me thank you know your your listeners who are probably already been donating money to a ukrainian organization or international charity and that's uh, so important because it's very flexible and great for providing the essentials that can be bought in, in Ukraine or Europe. Um, but everyone wants to know what they could do more. Uh, in, gifts, in terms of gifts of kind, uh, to be honest, life from the U.S., it's really only worth sending specific medicines or certain equipment like walkie-talkies, uh, both because shipping around the world is expensive and time-consuming and often things aren't needed. And, and what's not needed, for example, is clothing. A few year, weeks ago, I was at a large warehouse which receives about 100 trucks a day, and 80% of what they were receiving was clothing, which is absolutely uh, not needed. Um, also, people very generously talk about adopting refugees, and I think that's the sign that everyone feels a personal pain, seeing a mother and a kid flee a home with, with just a suitcase. And so out of lo- love and compassion, they want to connect with those families. Uh, but, and I'm very moved by that. Um, I'm, but it's not really actually so, so practical. Uh, yes, you know, there's that beautiful phrase from the Talmud, whoever saves one life saves the entire world. And we had that feeling for the past few years with Syrian and Afghani refugees, but they had different legal and geographical obstacles, uh, which Ukraine doesn't have. So Ukraine don't, they have, since 2017, they've had visa rights to be in most of Europe for substantial periods of time. And they want to be returning to Ukraine. And so uh, the complicated process of trying to, you know, get someone, bring family to the United States is, is not a, a priority for us at all. Um, so in terms of other things to help, there's soft power and influence. You could obviously start at the top. Uh, people, you can beseech the Almighty to hear the cries of the poor, especially this week with uh, Holy Week and Passover. Uh, there are no shortage of things to pray for and about. Um, in terms of influencing the great powers of the earth, we don't. I don't know the, the ins and outs of lobbying, but um, just even 1% increase in aid to Ukraine is worth millions of dollars. So anybody who knows how to do that should certainly be trying to influence and keep the government's attention on that. Um, I think 
one of the things that maybe everyone needs to be aware of, this is going to be a very long story. This, the Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine war is already eight years old. Uh, don't, don't let anybody, anyone Ukrainian hear you call it a conflict. Uh, it's a very bloody war already. Before this invasion started, there were already 15,000 people that died in eastern Ukraine. And this will go on for, you know, longer than the typical American attention span. And so I think one of the challenges we all have is how to keep this in people's minds in the coming months and to find innovative ways to make a difference. So maybe that's a thought for schools, uh, for call-in shows. How, how do we, you know, make sure this doesn't become a, a, a game of numbers and, and lose the, the human component? Can uh, people... Education. Yeah, well, I was, that was going to be my next question. Uh, it seems to me quite a while ago I sent a check to Ukrainian Catholic University after I my, my friend Brad had told me all about you. This was years ago. Uh, are they still accepting donations? Can you help the university? Because I have to believe you're helping a lot of students right now. Yes, yes. The Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation in Chicago accepts donations. And, and so many other good causes are. Um, I was going to say that, you know, I think connecting, what you're talking about is connecting to Ukrainians, either to Ukrainian causes directly or, um, you know, to Ukrainians uh, in other ways. Pastor Blake Rohrer of the Lutheran Church there in Madison contacted me, and we've, uh, we're arranging a Zoom meeting for some of his church with a Ukrainian Catholic priest here. I think we want to try to make these connections, uh, because in the end, that's what, that's that uh, power of friendship is often some of the strangest, the strongest uh, power we have. So, so maybe in ways of helping, besides, you know, help everyone learning about Ukraine from from books and uh, videos, and there was a nice medium-length article in Foreign Affairs recently. Uh, but also just by trying to develop ties in, in a world of social media, maybe find ties to Ukraine. And maybe I know this sounds idealistic, slide, but I. I would like to invite you and your listeners to think about coming to Ukraine um, this summer or next year. Let me know. See if we can arrange something. Um, we don't know what the what the next stages will look like, uh, much less um, reconstruction. But I think people, meeting people, developing relationships is usually a good first step. You know, one of the things I say that because you maybe know that the, the World Bank is expecting that Ukraine's economy is going to be down 40 percent for the year. And... It, this is part of the whole Russian game, is by destroying cities, is to make Ukraine a country without people. Uh, it's a black hole, No, you know, stay away from Ukraine. I've, I've had these kind of questions since 2014. You know, people don't ask me, oh, where are the good beaches? What are the nice mountain resorts <laughs> in the Carpathians? You know, they're asking me, oh, is it safe? You know, he's, he, he's made this black mark on the country, and not, not where can I invest? What about, you know, which IT companies are, are good to work with? So... I think one of our things is image issues, that personal connections like you have to the Ukrainian church can, can make a difference, that getting people to come and see that, that Ukraine will be rebuilding and that uh, this is a, a healthy society that's part of the world. So when, it, when that's feasible, I would, I would encourage everyone to think about uh, coming and let us know how we can do the, what we can do to help I... Ukraine help. I think that is a great suggestion, and I will say, uh, belonging to a Ukrainian Catholic Church in Canada, because I visit there frequently, has enriched my life greatly, and I've learned a lot. I've learned, 
I've, I've learned a lot about the world uh, because of that, and I will spend this Easter Mass at St. Michael's Ukrainian Catholic Church in Milwaukee, and they're doing a lot, they're sending a lot of money to Ukraine, and people in Wisconsin have been extremely generous. Well, thank you, and I think there's just that moral support and that physical support. So many of the, the uh, IDPs, the internally displaced people here in Ukraine, are themselves working as volunteers, and everyone feels part of this extraordinarily uh, cohesive world solidarity. And so the people in Madison and Milwaukee uh, are, I think, in the minds of people here in Ukraine. People are feeling that because boxes and packages come with the names of cities and towns and groups from all over the world. So it's a, it really is a united effort and uh, inspiring in every way. Stand by for just a moment. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Willis from Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. Thank you so much for joining us at Sly's office. My pleasure. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. <laughs>